Well, over the last several weeks, we've been making our way through the first couple chapters of the book of Acts, making our way through the ascension and Pentecost and Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And after all of these events, Luke records this incredible description about the early church. In Acts 2, 42, Luke tells us that in those days, all the people gathered together, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. From the earliest days of the church, God has always moved with extraordinary power through ordinary means. And so this summer, we're going to take time to really unpack those ordinary means. What the reformers call the ordinary means of grace, the word of God, the fellowship of God, the gathering together of God's people, and the prayers. And so next several weeks, we're talking about God's word. Last week, Mark preached on how we should listen to a sermon. This morning, going to talk about how we should see the word of God. And so if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, we're going to begin the gospel of Luke, chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, children, this morning, as you listen, I want you to think of your favorite story. I know that you love stories. My children love stories. We read them every night. I want you to hear how often I say the word story and how often I connect that word, story, to the name of Jesus Christ. For you adults, 
I want you to imagine a scene this morning. I want you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine a man sitting on a park bench reading one of the great American novels. As you come up to this man, you notice that he's visibly frustrated. He almost has a scowl on his face. He's there sitting on the bench and he's just thumbing through the pages so quickly and finally he just slams the book down. You come up to this man and you say, sir, what's wrong? I noticed that you seem very upset. And he tells you, I'm sitting here reading this book. My friends told me that I just had to read it, that it's the great American novel, that if I read this book, it would change my life. And I know I need to change some things. So I've been sitting here all morning trying to figure out where in this book it tells me where to live. I can't find it anywhere. I've been looking all morning trying to figure out what job am I supposed to have? I've been trying to find in this book somewhere the name of the person that I'm supposed to marry. And you know what? One of the changes I really wanted to make is I wanted to take up baking. And there is not a recipe for cherry pie anywhere in this book. So I don't want to read it anymore. And you just kind of look at him bewildered and you say, but sir, that's, that's not what that book is about. It's about so much more than that. And he looks at you almost disgusted. And he says, you know what? If this book doesn't tell me what I want to know, then what good is it to me? Now, I know that scenario seems ridiculous. But the truth is, if we're going to be honest this morning, so often that is exactly the way we approach the Bible. Luke, in his gospel, tells us the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And on that road, after he rose from the dead, he's with two of his followers, and yet they don't see him. Somehow, their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And so not knowing who they're talking to, they begin to explain to Jesus all that's just happened how he died on the cross, that he was crucified, and that the tomb is now empty, and all of this leads to this moment in verse 24. It's there in your bulletin. We're told that they say some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman, and this is what they say, but him they did not see. They're standing there in front of the risen Christ, and yet they cannot see him. You see, I think just like these followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, when it comes to the Bible, we fail to see Jesus even though he has been on every page from the very beginning. And so Jesus' response to these two men on the road to Emmaus who, who don't recognize him as this, he says, oh, foolish ones, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And then this is what he does. We're told in verse 27 that he begins with Moses. That's the Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. He begins with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted them in all of the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. Just like Jesus had done many times after his resurrection, he revealed himself, except this time he was not revealing himself through his hands or his side. This time he was revealing himself in all of the Bible from Genesis to the very end. And so this morning, as you think about what it means to read the Bible, this is what I want you to know. The Bible is not a textbook. It's not a guidebook. It's not a book of rules. It's not a philosophy. It's not a mythology. And yes, it is not the great American novel. The Bible is the greatest story that has ever been told. It is the true story from Genesis to Revelation, the story of redemption through Jesus Christ. And so as we continue our series on the extraordinary power through ordinary means, what I want you to see this morning is this, that the Bible's a story. It's a story that's told in four chapters, creation, fall, reconciliation and restoration. And in these four chapters, God tells the story of redemption through Jesus. And every time we read the Bible, he is inviting us to find our place in Christ's story. The first way I want us to see this, I want you to see in all the scripture that Christ is creator. By Christ, all things were created. Now, for the rest of the sermon, we're going to be all over the place. So if you brought your Bible with you, go ahead and get it out. If you're a note taker, you might just write Bible passages down and look them up later. If you have a Bible app, there's no judgment here. It actually might help you a little bit this morning. Go ahead and get it out. We're going to begin in Genesis, and we're going to work our way through Revelation in just about 15 minutes. Genesis 1, we're told, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. The earth was at, at, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. These are the opening sentences of the Bible. Whether you are a Christian or not a Christian this morning, odds are, wherever you live, you've probably heard them at some level, that in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. What you might not realize is that this opening sentence is everything. It sets the, te- the theme and the tone of God's story of redemption. What I want you to see is that this story, the story of Jesus, actually begins with creation. Now, this is incredibly important because I think, especially in the last 50 years of evangelical Christianity, we, we've almost assumed that the story of the gospel really just has two parts, fall and redemption. Sin and salvation. There's first the bad news and the good news, but the Bible doesn't begin that way. The Bible doesn't begin with the bad news. The Bible actually begins with good news. The good news of how God originally created the world. We see this in verse 3. Genesis 1, verse 3 God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and he saw that the light was good. In the beginning, there was goodness. In the beginning, there was light illuminating the darkness. 
spoken into being by the word of God's power. But God did not stop there. Genesis goes on to tell us that on the sixth day, after God created heavens and earth, after he created every, uh, s- the sun and every star and the heavens, after he created the fish and the sea and the birds and the air, on the sixth day he made his crowning achievement, what was always intended to be his greatest work in creation. He made us. He made human beings in his image. And not only that, but Genesis 1.28 tells us that he gave us, as his image bearers, dominion. In other words, originally, in God's created world, the way that he made things to be, when he created us in his image, he called us to be his vice regents. He gave us the stewardship over his kingdom, the kingdom of creation. He gave us dominion, he gave us rulership. He called us to be princes and princesses in the kingdom of God and to follow his authority and his divine kingship as we, together with him, established his kingdom as stewards of creation. Now this is important. It's important because today, we don't live in a world like that. Today, we live in a dark world. But what we must realize is that it's a world that God did not originally intend. A world that he did not create to be this way. Originally, God created goodness. And this is why you and I, made in the image of God, experience dissonance in our souls. That's why when we see our fractured world, we long for something good. Because originally it was made to be good. It's why every time that we see a sunset in its beauty, or we see a mother loving her child, or we see a stranger helping a neighbor, there's something in us that recognizes that's good. Because that's how God created it to be. Now, it's amazing then that when people come to read the Bible, and specifically when they come to read Genesis, they treat it as if it was some kind of textbook, like an eighth grade science book, as if that's what Genesis was trying to do. You see, Genesis isn't just trying to answer the question how, how the world was made. It does answer that. But you see, the Bible answers a question that's completely different a question that science can't ever answer. The Bible answers the question, who? Who made the world? Who is responsible for the universe? Who is responsible for humanity and how we are made in such intricate ways? Who is the creator? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter one. Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created by Jesus 
through Jesus and for Jesus. And you might be wondering this morning, well, how can that be? I always thought that when the world was made, it was God the Father who made it. Where was Jesus? Well, John in his gospel tells us. John 1 verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, not anything was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In the beginning, God's powerful word, the word, capital W, Jesus Christ, pierced the darkness and said, let there be light. And one day, many years later, Jesus' powerful word would pierce the darkness again. When Jesus, the light of the world, hung up on a cross and cried out, it is finished. Jesus Christ is creator, that's the first chapter. But the Second chapter of the story of redemption tells us that there's a fall, that humanity fell against Jesus Christ and all things were broken. The Bible gets not very far before the goodness of God's creation gets very, very bad. Genesis 3, we're told that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast, that he comes to the woman, he says, did God actually say Early in the story of redemption, we're introduced to our adversary, the devil. He's crafty, he's deceitful, he's a liar, he's divisive. He seeks to devour all those who've been made in the image of God. And so Satan, the serpent, questioned God's word. He says, did God really say? And he launches an open rebellion against God's kingdom by tempting Adam and Eve to commit treason against the king. This foundational event in human history is called the fall. It's where Adam and Eve disobeyed God, committed treason against the king, and decided to build their own kingdom, the kingdom of man, instead of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't take a lot of looking around to recognize that there's something not quite right about our world today. We all feel that, don't we? That something is off, something is deeply broken. All of this is traced to this one moment when Adam and Eve sinned and sin and shame entered the world. And so every evil, every injustice, Every act of hatred and racism, every division, every broken system, every cancer, and yes, every pandemic is rooted in the fall of humanity. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 8. He said that creation was subjected to futility. That word futility means barrenness. It means sterility, it's fruitless. In other words, everything was broken at the fall. And the Bible speaks of the brokenness of sin in story after story, chapter after chapter. Sometimes when we read the Bible and we read about sin, we, we don't know quite how to approach it. We wonder, because it's in the Bible, does that mean it's okay? But you see, the Bible doesn't shy away from the reality of the fall. It doesn't shy away from the horror of sin and the brokenness that we see in our world. 
and the brokenness that resides deep down in our hearts. And so in story after story, chapter after chapter, there's murder, adultery, there's genocide and slavery and racism and theft and deceit and idolatry and greed. There's jealousy and unbelief and not to mention the crucifixion of a guiltless man. The thing that the Bible makes clear is that we live in a fallen and broken and sinful world. But the thing that the Bible also makes clear is that this brokenness begins with us. Because of the fall, you and I bear the striking resemblance to Adam rather than the image of God. Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 put it this way. He says that we in our sin are now dead in our sin and we are now sons of disobedience. Sons and daughters of Adam and Eve born into sin. And what I want you to begin to wrestle with this morning is that sin is not just immorality or just doing something bad, but sin is nothing less than committing high treason against the king. And the penalty for treason is death. Not only do we see creation, and then we see creation broken by the fall, but in the third chapter, the third chapter of God's great story of redemption, we see that in Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. So right there in Genesis 3, in the middle of all of this sin and shame, in the middle of Adam and Eve's disobedience and the curse that has now fallen on all creation in Genesis 3.15, God says this. He tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this the proto-evangelion, in English, it just means the first gospel. In other words, the story of the gospel doesn't begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The story of the gospel is found all the way in Genesis, in the very opening chapters. Here in Genesis 3.15, we see a promise, a promise that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent once and for all. Throughout the Bible, this promise is called a covenant. A covenant is a eternal, everlasting promise made by God unto death. And what we see throughout the pages of scripture is that God's covenant of grace is repeated throughout the story of redemption over and over and over again with one single refrain. This is his promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so in Genesis 17, God made a covenant with Abraham and he said, I will be your God, you will be my people. In Exodus 19, God made a covenant with Moses and he said, I will be your God, you will be my people. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David. He said, I will be your God, you will be my people. And Jeremiah 31, God made a new covenant that would be written in our hearts. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
And then at the end of all things, in the book of Revelation chapter 21, John tells us that when Jesus Christ comes again, he will fulfill all of these covenant promises and he will declare once and for all, I am your God and you are my people. This is the language of reconciliation. God is telling a bunch of people who are his enemies, a bunch of people who rebelled against him, a bunch of people that time and time again he has rescued and they turned their back on him, a bunch of people who sent his only son to the cross. He is coming to them and he is saying, you will be mine again. Though you oppose me now, though you treat me with hatred and hostility and your sin against me, I will reconcile you to myself. And once more, I will be your God and you will be my people. When we talk about reconciliation, it's a relational term. It means that there are two parties that between the two parties exist deep division and great separation, hatred and hostility. And friends, what I want you to see this morning is that outside of Jesus Christ, this is your standing with God, your creator. Because of your sin, you stand at enmity with him. What does that mean? It just means you're his enemy. But thanks be to God, by his grace, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile all things to himself. You say the thing about reconciliation is it typically takes two parties to come together, to lay their enmity, their hostility and strife down and become friends again. We have no ability to do that with God. Only he can do that with us. The only one who can reconcile us to the living God is his own son, Jesus Christ. Words of assurance put it well this morning, taken from Colossians chapter one. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because God loved you, his enemies, so much, he sent his own son to die in your place, to bear the wrath and judgment that was to fall on you so that you could be reconciled, so that you might become his people once more. The final chapter of the story of redemption is the chapter of restoration, that through Christ, one day all things will be restored and what's so amazing about reading the Bible is not only does it explain our own stories and the story of Jesus, but it also gives us a vision of the story of our future. And so the book of Revelation chapter 19, we are told that John sees a vision of Jesus when he comes again. And John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. This is judgment day. The day when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. The day when he pours out his justice on sinful humanity. But what you have to understand is that if you see the day of judgment as part of the whole of the story of redemption, what you see is that God's retribution is not the end. The end of God's justice is not only retributive. What do I mean by that? It's not just about punishment. You see, because his punishment fell on Jesus on the cross, the end of God's judgment is restorative. In God's justice, he will restore all things. If you've ever heard me officiate a wedding, you know that one of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Revelation 21. This is where we're gonna end. In Revelation 21, after this rider on the white horse, Jesus, whose name is the word of God, comes to judge the living and the dead, then John hears a voice again, a voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you hear it? I will be your God, you will be my people. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. One day Jesus Christ will return. He will come to fulfill his covenant vows like a faithful husband pursuing a faithless bride. And when he does, justice will roll down like mighty waters. Wrongs will be righted. Tears will be wiped away. There will be no pain anymore. No mourning anymore. No crying anymore. No death anymore. All things will be made new. In other words, when Christ comes again, he will restore all things back to the way it was in the garden. Back to the way God made it to be at creation when he declared, it is good. These past several days, I've been reading the work of an African-American pastor named John Perkins. I think Dr. Perkins can put it better than I ever could. He said, justice is any act of reconciliation that restores any part of God's creation back to its original intent, purpose, or image. So brothers and sisters, friends, I don't know where this finds you this morning. I don't know what kind of hopelessness you might be experiencing, what kind of pain from the fall you might be enduring, whether it's the brokenness that exists all in the world around us, perhaps it's the brokenness of cancer or sickness that now wreaks havoc on your physical body or perhaps it's the brokenness of sin that's making war against your soul. But what I want you to see is this, that when you come to the Bible and you see it for what it is, God's great story of redemption through Jesus on every page, you are being invited to find your place in the story. You're being invited to see God through Jesus as creator. 
You're being invited to acknowledge your sin and confess it and come out of the hiding of shame. You're invited to see Jesus Christ hung there on a cross, his death and resurrection for your reconciliation. And you are invited to now become princes and princesses in the kingdom of God, his ambassadors, and now his messengers of reconciliation to a lost and dying world. Don't read the Bible like a textbook. Don't just thumb through the pages trying to put your agenda on it. But instead, allow through the Holy Spirit the Bible to read you and to begin to show you who Jesus is in all the scriptures. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the Bible. What a gift it is to us. Even after I've preached these words, I myself confessed how trivial I make it to be. But so often, I don't see it for what it is. So I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters and my friends this morning that you would give us new eyes by your Holy Spirit of how to see your Bible, how to see the word of God. We pray that every time we come to read your word, we would see Jesus a great story of redemption for us, we ask in his name. Amen.